All right. Always good to be able to, to greet each other. Sometimes we get a chance to greet each other out there, but we come in here early and we don't get a chance to say hello to people or meet somebody new. So I uh, want to give you all that opportunity this morning. Uh, my name is Brian McKenzie. If you're new here, I serve as one of the elders here uh, and uh, have the privilege to teach a couple times a month as well. So uh, it's a great privilege to have you all here with us to worship this morning and or been a great time in worship through song. And now it's time to spend some time in God's Word. And right now, we are in a series, we're going to continue our series, studying the first letter uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy, and we've entitled the series to be strong in grace. And this morning is part 23, and if you're visiting with us and you see we're just in chapter 3 and part 23, yes, we don't go real fast. It's probably more for me than Jay, uh, since I needed a little bit more help to catch up a little bit, but no, we're 23 and just we don't want to miss anything. And this morning, we're going to be covering verse 12, and the title, you can see the message, Deacons, Resolute at Home. Resolute at Home. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I encourage you to turn to that. Um, get there. We're going, to, we're going to be studying this verse a little bit later here together, but get the First Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 12, and so we can... Uh, study that together. But also, before we dive in, we want to make sure we read God's Word together. So if you'd stand with me, and we're going to read our, the whole passage we've been studying uh, to make sure we're in context, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Read this along with me. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the clarity of it, for the truth of it, for the purity of it. And Lord, we ask now as we consider your word this morning that you would open up our hearts and minds and do what only you can do. You would transform us by the renewal of our minds so we can know what your will is, so we can walk in it, so we can honor you, so we can fall deeper in love with you. Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we, uh, Jay covered verse 11 and titled the message, Dancing with Deacons. And if you were here last week, you kind of know how he got to Dancing with Deacons, but we'll get there in a second as we review from last week. Uh, his main task was really to explain verse 11. So Jay pointed out um, that at, at this point in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul has been pointing out what men or how men are to qualified to lead. And then he pointed out through the, the Lord through Paul here has very important things to say to women and how women are to lead and how women are qualified to serve in the church. So Jay then told us a story from God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you remember that, about Nabal and Abigail to help illustrate uh, this point, this, the type of women that are to serve in God's church. Uh, the story began, he began to telling us it was, it was sheep shearing time. And if you guys know anything about this story in 1 Samuel chapter 25, you know about Nabal. And I'll, I'll just say this about Nabal, all right? Or Nabal, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He was a jerk. 
All right. If you were here last week and you know the story, he was a jerk. All right. So here's the deal. Nabal's there. It's sheep shearing time. He's got his people out there shearing the sheep, and David knows about it. He's clo- living closer there, and 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 we discovered in the story that that David sent some of his men. Uh, to, Dave, to Nabal to, to give him a blessing, to encourage him with a message of peace. And David's message to Nabal was also to remind Nabal that, that while David's men were, were next to his men and next to their sheep, they didn't lose one sheep. David said, hey, we protected you. We, we took care of you. You guys didn't lose one sheep from anybody. We were, we were just like the, the secret service around you a little bit. You had no idea we were always there, but nobody took in your sheep. We, we were a blessing to you. And, and, and um, so David, through his men, then asked Nabal to be generous and share in the feast they were getting ready to have. I mean, after all, David and his men had been there. They'd been serving them, even quietly, but had been t- protecting them. Hey, we, would you let us enjoy the feast with you? And you'd think that for all David had done, Nabal would go, hey, great, come on over. Thank you so much. But remember, Nabal was a jerk, and that's not what he did. In fact, he did the exact opposite. Who, who does David think he is? I mean, this is my stuff. You tell David he can't have anything. Get out of here. That's not exactly what he said, but that was pretty close to it. It was probably worse than that. Um, this is the G version. And, and so when David got the message, David was super happy about it, right? Oh, let's go. I'm going to go give Nabal a hug, and he's going to be a great friend. No, he was furious. And he begins to put together his army of 400 men armed with swords to go and show Nabal who was boss. Well, then this is where Abigail comes in the story. Abigail gets word of this from one of the servants. And, and it was interesting how the servant even described his master. You know how my master is. He, he, basically, he's a jerk. And you know that. And he's put us in a predicament. He turned David's men away and was rude to them, sent them away. And David's coming with an army, come with a posse to take care of Nabal. Well, what did Abigail do? Well, she got her own posse together, her own army, and armed him with a huge feast of food. And we went, and the two army, the two posses or two groups came together. And, and Abigail got down off of her donkey and she bowed before David and said, Please let me take the blame for what my husband has done to you. Please accept this as an offering for peace. And David really praised her and said, Abigail, you, you've saved your husband. You've also saved me to do, of doing something wrong, of murdering your husband. Thank you so much. Well, that, that was the, the, the story that David told, or that Jay told about David, um, Abigail, and Nabal to illustrate what kind of women are worthy of respect. We would all agree. You go read that story that Abigail is a woman who is worthy of respect. What a woman. And that, that was to help us see. This is the first. If you look, uh, if you look back there in, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, it says, women must also likewise be worthy of respect. And Jay pointed out that just like Abigail, those women who serve in the church will be, will, will be those who earn respect, though not demand respect. And there's a difference in there. Jay spent some time talking about that. Not you're going to respect me. Now, all women are owed respect because they're created in image of God. But some women are more worthy of respect because they've earned it by the way they've served, the way they've loved, the way they've honored God with all that they do in their house and, and every place. And, and, and a woman qualifies herself for ministry by making herself worthy of respect. Jay, so Jay also pointed out that the, the word in, in verse 11 for woman can either be translated woman or wives. In fact, it's, it's translated um, as woman a little bit more than wives, but <clears throat> they're very similar. 
right? Regardless of the translation preferred, it's obvious that women who will serve in the church alongside male deacons are to be qualified to do so. That, that's the point here. We can, we can argue about what it was to be woman or wives, all we want, but the point is that they'll be qualified. And, and when, when we ordain men from the group of deacons to elders, if they qualify themselves as such, all right, they, men, men go from elders to deacons, not always, only if they qualify themselves. But when we here at the potter's house, when we ordain a man, we also ordain his wife as a deacon. They serve together. It's kind of where, where, where Jay got in together, got to uh, this whole dancing with the deacons, right? And how it's a beautiful picture, Paul's painting, of how men and women serve together. It's beautiful how God's created that. In our home, we serve together in our home. We serve together in a community. We serve together in the church. And here, the deacons, that, that, that's what happens. Um, and, but here at the Potter's House also, if it doesn't mean a man has to be married to be a deacon. That doesn't say that in the scripture. So we have single men that serve here in the church in that role. We also have single women who don't, they don't have to be married that serve in that role. All right? And then, of course, we, we do have elders. And the elders here at the Potter's House, because of our understanding of scripture, are all men. Um, but that just kind of gives you an idea of how we handle this passage and what we do. We, we honor the women who are worthy of respect. And then Jay proceeded to show some of the ways in which women show themselves to be worthy of respect. If you, you look there in, in verse 11, it says, Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So they must use their words to build up, not tear down. If you remember, Jay quoted Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome or impure word come out of your mouth, but only those words that build up and are good for the moment. They give grace to those who hear. Right? So they use the words to build up. They're also, they're, the word temperate there has this idea of not being extreme, not a firecracker. All right? They just fl- fly off the handle at every little thing, and also not an iceberg where nobody wants to be around them. They're a little cold. But they're temperate. They're right in the middle. They're, no matter what happens, their temperature stays the same. I'm sure you've heard this illustration. Instead of being thermometers, they're thermostats. They set the temperature. That's the kind of leader we want. That's the kind of woman that's worthy of respect. And then it says faithful, just to throw it all out there, faithful in all her responsibilities. When she shows up, she does all that she promised she'd do. She keeps her word. She's faithful. Jay also pointed out that in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is helping us see, that again, this beauty, all right, of men and women together, working together. And Jay pointed out how he and Faith had been able to work together to serve people who are struggling in their walk with Christ. How they've, in a sense, figuratively danced together, all right? And there's some things that, Jay, that Faith brings to the table that Jay just doesn't bring to the table. And the things Jay brings to the table that Faith doesn't bring to the table. And how they've been able to come together and help serve people. And many of us in this room have been served by Jay and Faith, haven't we? Beautifully, as they've danced together to serve us in the name of the Lord. Well, to remind us of this beauty of how men and women dance, uh, minister together, Jay assigned couples to go home and do something. You guys remember this? Hopefully you, you did your homework assignment. If you were here last week, nobody's shaking their head. Nobody listened to this part. Uh, I have to tell Jay they were asleep at this point, okay? Which may happen later on today, too. But he said, hey, go home, find the, 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 the song Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapman and play it. Take your shoes off and dance with each other. And husbands, he said, the guy said, dance with her like she knows she's been danced with. All right? And that was just to illustrate how we come together. We dance 
figuratively together, but to illustrate that, to go home and dance and spend time with your wife and look in her eyes. And John L. and I, we did that. We found the song right there in our living room, and we danced together, just as, an, as a, a physical symbol of what we do often um, spiritually and we do in serving. Well, this morning, we're going to turn our attention back to the qualifications for deacons. And to help summarize these qualifications, as you all know, when I've been teaching, I've, just, I've summarized them in this way. All right, these, these are the, the summarization of the qualification for deacons. Deacons are to be response, respectable. Deacons are to have self-restraint or, self, or, or self-control. Deacons are to retain the faith. Deacons are to be reviewed. And this morning, we're going to be examining the next main heading here. We see deacons are to be resolute or faithful at home. And then next week, uh, Jay will cover the last one. Deacons will be rewarded. All right, so yeah, I, I get it. I have all R's on there. Remember, it helps me remember. Maybe it helps you remember too. So that's why the resolute is there and faithful at home. But before we examine verse 12, I want to remind us again, as we have throughout the qualification for elders, qualification of deacons, all these things. You can find every one of these qualifications, other places in the New Testament addressed to every follower of Jesus Christ. It's, these are not just for elders, not just for deacons. It's everybody who's maturing in their relationship as they follow Jesus Christ. So it's easy to tell. These are elders and deacons, and we've been on this for a few weeks. I'm going to shut down. I just want to remind all of us, this is for all of us. The qualifications here, the, the qualities of people who follow Jesus should be seen in all of us, and all these should be seen in all of us. Well, also before we look at verse 12 and examine the qualifications that deacons are to be resolute at home, I, I want us uh, to do something that I believe would be very helpful for all of us. We have been taking our time. Look, we're doing a verse at a time. A couple of these, we even broke the verses up, and we just like dealt with one phrase. And, and I get it. Some of you are like, man, come on, this is like pulling teeth. Let's go. Let's get to, let's get to chapter four, all right? You can say that out loud or inside. That's okay. We've just been taking our time. Um, and what can happen is we can lose sight of what it's all about. That's what, that's what we can, ha- can happen is we, as we do this, we teach this. We, we, we're committed here at the Potter's House to teach expositionally or expository preaching, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible because that's the best way to understand it. That's how God menace understand it. Not to take a verse here and take a verse here and take a verse here and hope they all fit together. But God wants us to look at books of the Bible and look in context. So that's what we do. And, and yes, we've been taking our time. So here, here's a question. Why does Paul make such a detailed list of qualifications for elders and deacons? He, he also does de- elders again in Titus. Why does he do that? Or why is it such a big deal that we have qualified elders and deacons in the church? Why is that such a big deal? Get over it. Come on, you guys got to move on. And I know you're not saying it right now, but you're probably saying it inside again. In order to answer that question, we need to ask another question. What is the main message or theme of the Bible? And what does 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 have to do with that? Let me ask that question again. What is the main message or the main theme of the Bible, and what does 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, have to do with that main message? In fact, this question should be asked of every passage of Scripture, every passage of Scripture that we come across. They're not meant to be just little pieces here and there and there. They all fit together, and they do have something with the main message of the Bible. So in order to answer that question or those questions, I want us to look at something. All right, now look real close here. Beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, what a picture. Wow, look at the colors. 
orange, blue, tan, yellow, black. There's also some pretty cool shapes in there if you look at it. You have a little cur curly cue and a circle and probably a triangle in there and a rectangle and, and all these things, right? Well, what in the world is that? What, what is that? I mean, there's some neat things, colors, shapes. What is that? It's a puzzle piece, all right? It's a puzzle piece. That's what it is. It's a puzzle piece, all right? Well, what's this next picture? A bunch of puzzle pieces, right? A bunch of puzzle pieces. And um, we can look at the detail on each one of these puzzle pieces and look at different shapes and different colors and, 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 and appreciate the colors and appreciate the shapes. But however, we never will truly appreciate them until we know where and how they fit together. Each of the individual puzzle pieces are important, and each of them have unique things about them. But we'll never truly appreciate them until we know how and where they fit together. And how are we going to do that? You think anybody could put that puzzle together? Actually, that's just a few of, I think it's a 500-piece puzzle I got from the house, and I took all these pictures, so I'm not sure. Uh, but here, here's how we do that. All right, look at this next picture. Boom, there's a picture. It's kind of a weird picture. I mean, that's the best I could do, all right? Also had the, state, the, the, the 50 states and 84 pieces, too, so this one I thought was a little bit better. All right, now we put all those pieces, that one piece, we take it all those two pieces, and we put them all together. Now we see the picture, and this is on top of the box, and you look at the box, and then you look at the pieces. If you've ever put together a jigsaw puzzle, and you look at the pieces, and you look at the box, and you see, okay, this goes here. This, oh, look at that. Okay, we got this bus over here, so i got to find those pieces for the bus and how that all goes together, and boom. And now you've got this beautiful picture. Now you can appreciate the individual pieces when you, they all come together because you know how they all fit together. This makes way much more sense, right, than me showing that first picture. Way more sense because it's a complete picture. In a much more important way, the same can be said of individual, individual truths found in God's Word, the Bible. We need to know where they fit in the big picture, where they fit in the main message of the Bible. So now back to that question. What is the main message or theme of the Bible? Where does 1 Timothy chapter 3 fit in to that main message? So what's the main message of the Bible? All right. Um, I'll get that in just a second. Uh, some people will answer saying things like this. The main message of the Bible is God's playbook. That's, I hear that all the time because I work with athletes. Right. It's, it's God's playbook. Okay. Other people say this. It's basic instructions before leaving Earth, B-I-B-L-E, all right? Other people, if you haven't heard that one, that's one I hear. It, it's what God wants us to do, okay? And I would say with each one of those and some very similar like that, there's some truth in all those statements. But that's not the main message of the Bible. In fact, if all, God, all God's word is God's playbook and it's what he wants us to do, we're in trouble. It's way better than that. It's way more beautiful than that. That's the kind of picture we would draw, but it's not the kind of picture that God drew in his main message of the Bible. All right, so what is it? What is the main message of the Bible? The main message of the Bible is this, God's eternal and gracious plan to redeem a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Let me say it again. The main message of the Bible is this, is God's eternal and gracious plan to redeem a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That is the main message of the Bible. 
That's what it's all about. Sometimes this thing can be intimidating. I'm telling you, you pick this up and you've never been in it, you're like, oh my gosh. And maybe you even got the thin line one, right? It's about this big. And it's super small letters that I can't read. All right? And it's still intimidating. You're like, what is that thing all about? And you get in there and you start in Leviticus and you're like, what is all this? And, and we, we miss the big picture. When we understand the big picture, we can see what God is doing in fulfilling his plan. And, and the main message of the Bible is sometimes referred to, listen, a meta-narrative. The meta-narrative, which means big story. Meta-narrative. It's the big, here's the big story of the Bible. It's his story. It's his story. We, we use the word what? History, don't we? You know what history is? It's his story. He's working out his story in our world. And if we had one word to, to explain the whole main message of the Bible, it would be the word redemption. The main message of the Bible is redemption, to buy back or to purchase. Other synonyms with redeem or redemption or rescue or save, that's the main message of the Bible. We just sang the song, what, Jesus Messiah. And I requested that song specifically this morning. And the reason I did, because it's so good about focusing on the main message of the Bible. And here, here, here's the chorus again. Jesus, the word Yeshua is the, the Hebrew word, Yeshua. God saves. God rescues. His name, Messiah, is the anointed one to come. All right, name above all, blessed redeemer. I just said redemption, right? Redeemer, to buy back, to purchase. Emmanuel, God with us. Rescue again for sinners. Ransom, the ransom means a payment to pay for our sin. Jesus again, Messiah, Lord of all. This, this chorus here in that song reminds us what is the main message of the Bible all about. It's about him. It's about God's eternal and gracious redemption plan. That's what it's about. I want to take some time this morning to review God's plan of redemption. We're going to get to verse 12, I promise, in, in 1 Timothy. But, but I'm just telling you, verse 12 of 1 Timothy is one of those things in the Bible that you don't go, man, I wonder what he means by that. That's kind of confusing. I mean, it's really straightforward. So I, I didn't want to spend that much time, but I want to see how it fits into the big picture to the main message, and hopefully every time we come in here, we, we ask this question, whether I'm teaching or Jay's teaching or one of the other elders is teaching, we ask this question, what does this have to do with the main message of the Bible? Because if we can't connect that, then there's something wrong. God doesn't want a thousand stories out there all discon, uh, discombobulated and, and disconnected. It all comes together. I, I've sometimes summarized God plan, God's plan and, and, and his story with the following words. All right, creation, corruption, covenant, Christmas, cross, consummation. Those are the words. Again, they're all C's. Yes, I, just if you don't know, I played linebacker, so lots of hits to the head. So this helps me remember God's story, okay? And if it helps you, great. If not, you come up with your own words. I will not be offended. All right, in the beginning of God, God created the heavens and the earth. We know the story. It's the very first book, verse in the Bible. You're thinking, hey, if he's going to go verse by verse through the whole Bible, we're going to be here a long time. But I'm not, all right? I'm just going to summarize. But to get, make sure we understand God's big story here, that the main message of the Bible. And, and, he, and he, listen, he created the heavens and the earth, and he filled it with amazing things. Go read Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing what God did. If you can't worship God just from Genesis 1, you, then you, you have a misunderstanding Genesis 1. He made everything out of nothing. Try that one. He's the only one that can do that. What a God. And then he created the crown of his creation. He created man and woman. 
He created humans. That was the crown of his creation. And, and he said that this was very good, all that he created. And then one day in the garden, man and woman were tempted by the enemy, the devil. And they thought they had a better idea than God. And, and the devil questioned God's word. He twisted God's word. He denied God's word. And what happened? That led to Adam and Eve disobeying God's word. Let me say that again. The devil, if you go back there and read Genesis 3, what did he do? He questions God's word. He twists God's word. He denies God's word. Surely you will not die. He's questioning God's word. He's denying that God will actually bring judgment, which we do that really good today, too. No, God's just. He will. And then it led to Adam and Eve disobeying God's word. And indeed, corruption had entered into God's perfect creation and devastated the relationship that God had with man and woman, with humankind. It devastated. It changed it forever. Things could not have been worse. Things weren't as bad as they could be, but they're as bad off as they could be. The excitement and intimate fellowship had now been replaced with fear and brokenness. What would happen? Would God wipe them off the face of the earth? Let me say this. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. What? Well, God said in the day to eat of it, you will die. That was, it. that was what he said. And they didn't die. But that's what they deserved. So anybody that says, hey, why was God so kind of rough with Adam and Eve? He wasn't rough. He was amazingly gracious to them. Because, yes, they died spiritually, but they didn't die physically, but they should have died physically. But they didn't because God was so amazingly graceful or gracious to, the, to Adam and Eve. Well, no, he doesn't wipe them off the face of the earth. Instead, he would put into action his eternal and gracious plan to redeem his people. He would make a covenant. See the word covenant? Which is a promise. God would make a covenant in the midst of this, in the midst of Adam and Eve saying, you know, God, we got a better way. We're going to go this way. And rejecting all of God's grace and love. In the midst of it, God made a promise. He made a covenant. He does it in the midst of announcing the curse on the serpent, the devil, for the part, his part in the fall. Look with me at Genesis 3.15. What it says here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is sometimes referred to, as, this is a big word, but I'll explain to you what it means in case somebody says, yeah, that's the whatever. It's called the proto-evangelion. All right, what that means is proto means first, evangelion means gospel. It's the first gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel. God makes a promise to do something about sin. Right now, right after sin, he goes, I got a plan. And in fact, he's an eternal plan. I'm not taking, say, there's no plan B with God. This was plan A all along. And God already had a plan. And he begins to enact that plan to redeem his people from sin. Right here in Genesis 3.15, it's the announcement of God's good news. All right, that he's going to take care of sin's penalty, power, and presence. Look at this verse just briefly with me here. I will put, and he's speaking to the enemy, he's speaking to Satan, I will put enmity. Enmity means hostility. All right, that's what it means, hostility. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. All right, so we got hostility between the woman and Satan. Then he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. Some of your translations say your seed and her seed. So now it's not necessarily just between the woman and Satan, but it's between her offspring and his offspring, or her, his offspring. Now listen, he, oh, he, now her offspring, Plural has become one, all right, singular masculine pronoun. He, a specific offspring. He, what will, he will what? 
bruise your head, and in so doing, you shall bruise his heel. Who's the he? It's Jesus. And when did he crush the serpent's head? On the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, yes, his heel, in a sense, Jesus' heel is bruised. He died physically, but he rose again. So which is the fatal wound, the head or the heel wound? It's the head wound. This is the first promise of the Messiah to come. This is right in the midst of after he sin. Hey, I've got a promise. I'm sending somebody that's going to take care of this sin problem, to take care of the problem of sin and death in the world. Wow. What a gracious God. He announces, here's my eternal and gracious redemption plan, and it will be through a singular man. All right? That's, that's what it's about. And it's, it's, the, it's the promise or covenant that God all right, repeats all through the Old Testament. He explains it from the beginning to end. It's the same plan. In fact, it doesn't take long for him to expand this in Genesis when he makes a covenant to Abraham. Before that, we have Noah, and we have a picture of God's redemption, right? You have all this evil, and Noah and his family gets on the ark, and he saves them from his justice that was deserving of everybody. He puts them on, and it says, and the Lord shut them in. I love that. He shut them. He protects them. He redeems his people right there. It's already started. Every, all these pictures in the Old Testament, these stories in the Old Testament, are all always pointing to the ultimate one who would save us from our sins and redeem us, and that was Jesus. Every one of them. Even the story about Abigail and Nabal was all about that, God carrying out his plan. But he come, come, you come to Genesis 12, and you have Abraham. Look what it says, and I will make you great nation and will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This covenant is really just a further explanation of Genesis 3.15. Now, now look, he, he's going to be through her offspring, so he's picking this one guy named Abraham, and it's going to be through his offspring, it says that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How will all the nations of the earth be blessed through the offspring of Abraham? They'll be blessed through the offspring, Jesus, who will come and ransom his people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's how. This is just a further of God's promise, his covenant, to come and take care of sin. And then he passes it on to his son Isaac and Jacob and on and on. The promise of the covenant about the Messiah is further explained in the history portion of the Old Testament and in the poetry portion and in the prophets. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was sitting on my front porch as I often do. We, I'd recommend a front porch for anybody that doesn't have a front porch. I love front porches. And we have one on our front porch. Our neighbors are sitting right there. I'm looking at them. And they know we, I like to sit on my front porch early in the morning. I'll see Adam drive by right there. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying. And it's just a great place We look out there and see the beauty of God's creation. I'm in his word, and I'm reading in Psalm 105. And, and what I'm doing for every, all of our kids is I'm annotating a whole entire Bible for every one of our kids. And I'm in, on my third child right now, J Jonathan, and I was in Psalm 105 in my reading that day. So I, I began to, to read through, and I became overwhelmed by Psalm 105 because I was thinking, I knew I was going to be teaching on, and I knew I was going to be teaching on this, reminding us of what the main message of the Bible is. All right, look what it says in uh, Psalm 105, 8. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. It doesn't mean there's only a thousand. You stop. It's just, that's just poetry to say for all the generations to come. I've remembered, he's remembered his covenant. 
And then as you continue to walk down through that psalm, it goes on to recount the covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I encourage you to go read it later. And how he assured that no matter what, no matter what, he would fulfill his covenant promise of the Messiah who would conquer sin and death. And the psalm goes on and shows how God how God used Joseph to save the, the extinction of Abraham's offspring from the famine. If you remember that story, at the end of Genesis, they're all dying and are going to die of a famine, but God takes Joseph, he drops him in Egypt, Joseph ascends a second in command and brings his whole family, Abraham's descendants, to Egypt so they can eat. That's all about God preserving and carrying out his redemption plan. I hope you see that. Go read your Bible with this in mind, and it's going to be like, whoa, look what God's doing. He's coming through on his promise. He's coming through on his covenant. And it, it, it continued to show how God, through Moses, rescued his people and preserved his covenant to bring about the Messiah through Abraham's offspring. And one of the things that really jumped off the page, I, I was going to take a picture, you really couldn't see it. I like them. I'm annotating and marking up, and you couldn't see it. But one of the things that jumped off the page in Psalm 105 was, was this. It was the word he. All these phrases began with he, like this. He sent, he made, he caused, he made, he turned their heart, he sent, he spoke, he struck down, and on and on, he, 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 God, God. It shows God's intentional and sovereign action to assure the fulfillment of his plan. He was doing it. He was rescuing his people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and he's still doing it today. Go read Psalm 105. Amazing. God was keeping his covenant to his people. Then after the promise of his covenant and, and the emphasis throughout the Old Testament, there are 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak through any prophet. 400 years. I mean, he's spoken enough. If you can't get it by the, the, the first part, all right, Genesis to Malachi, all right, that he's got this plan and he's, he's going he's to fulfill his plan, plan and the promise he made in Genesis 3.15, he goes 400 years of silence. There's no need for anybody else to speak. He's spoken clearly. And we didn't get it. Most people didn't get it. And then you have Christmas. God became man. And he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Jesus came just like he promised. And he lived among us. And he showed us what God would look like and how God would treat people, and how God would love people. And he ultimately, right, he ultimately gave his life on the cross and then rose again to conquer sin and death, to redeem a multitude, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Wow, what a Savior. What a Savior, what a God who would do that, who would make his promise. And even when mankind throughout history basically just gave God what we call flipping him off, give him the bird, say whatever it was, that's what mankind had done forever and ever. He just kept on. God's never intimidated by our sin. He didn't want us to sin. Be, oh, gosh, you know, my plan's all messed up because they sinned. What am I going to do now? No, he's going to do it in spite of us. In spite of us. What a God. Wow, aren't you glad you're here to worship a God like that this morning? And not some dead God? We have a living Savior who's about fulfilling his plan to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Now, now look back with me, all right? At, 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 or, or just go back in your mind to 1 Timothy. We'll go to your second. 
3, and, and here's our second question. How does 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, fit into the main message of the Bible redemption? How does this passage, we've been studying for the last 10 weeks maybe, all right, how does it, how does it fit in there? It's, gotta fit, it's not here for no reason. Oh, let's just give them some random things to give them leaders, and here's seven great ways you can be a great leader. That's not what it's about at all. Not at all. And yet sometimes that's the way we look at it because we forget the big picture of what God's about. The simple answer is that God uses people to bring about his plan of redemption. That's the simple answer. He used Abraham. He used Adam. He used Eve. He used Noah. He used Abraham. He used Moses. He used Esther. He used Ruth. He used John, James, Peter, Mary, Martha, and people like you and me to carry out and fulfill his plan of redemption. He uses people. That's the simple answer. People who proclaim God's good news of redemption through faith in, in, in Jesus Christ as a Savior. That's, he uses people to do that. And in 1 Timothy 3, he uses leaders like elders and deacons to lead the church to effectively share his message with our lips and with our lives. That's, that's why it's important. So now let's briefly examine the, verse, 11 and the next, or verse 12 and the next main heading in our passage concerning the qualification of deacons. Deacons are to be resolute at home. Look with me at verse 12 there again. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. Right? So these are the type of leaders, these are the type of people that God uses to, to lead and help organize and the, the, the church so that we can be about sharing the good news of God's redemption plan with our lives and with our lips. So these mature people who've been walking with Jesus and they have these qualifications and you, oh, I, I, they're worthy of respect. I can follow them. And they're leading us to fulfill God's plan. Well, one, it says here, a husband of only one wife. Literally, it means a one-woman man. Well, there's probably a lot of reasons that, 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 they had, that this had to be a qualification. A one-woman man. Probably because of polygamy. People who were, had been a pagan and had many wives, all right, and now they, they, they have one wife because that was God's intention. Hey, just, just throw this back here real quick. A lot of you go and you read the Old Testament. Well, man, he had a lot of wives. How about David and Solomon and all the wives they had? And somebody used that to, to justify, well, I should have a lot of wives. Hey, the first time a man has more than one wife, there's a big problem, and God is not happy about it. And it learns at least all these consequences. In David and Solomon's life, it led Solomon away and the nation of Israel away to worship foreign gods because they had multiple wives. That's never God's intention. You can never get that from the Bible. All right? So a one woman, a man, it not just having one, okay? It, it also means a, 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 it basically means a man who is faithful to his wife. He's faithful. In every way, he's faithful, sexually, emotionally, mentally, mentally to his wife. He's faithful to her. That, that, that's that's what, what God wants from a marriage, and that's what God wants. He says a one-woman man, he wants to be faithful. Now, we, Jay talked about this when we were, to, when we were adding new deacons here last year, um, that this doesn't necessarily mean someone can't serve as a deacon if they've been divorced. That's not, it doesn't say that here. All right? That's not, that's it. Now, there, there's things that we have to look and say, okay, what, what was the reasoning? There's, there are biblical reasons for divorce. Never, God never counsels for divorce, but there are biblical reasons, all kinds of things. He dealt with that, right? So a one-woman man is the, the man's wife now, all right? He's walking with Jesus, and is he faithful to his wife? Is he leading her? Is he loving her? Does he have eyes only for, for her? I can tell you now, John and I were married in 1995. We had to celebrate our anniversary earlier this month. 
and I have eyes for one woman, and that's right there. Uh, that's it. Nobody else. I've got one woman, and I'm going to be faithful to her by God's grace the rest of my life. That's the way it's meant to be. Is, well, the next thing, it says good managers of their home, all right, you see there, and their ho- good managers of their children and their households. What, basically what this means, investing God's word into their, his children in word and deed. Investing God's word into his children in word and deed. Now, you've heard me say this before. There's only two things in this world that will last forever, right? What are those two things? God's word and people. Those are the only things that will last forever in this world, God's word and people. So we should spend the rest of our lives investing God's word into people. And, and that's what the, the, the qualification for this man and all men who, are, who have children is to invest God's word into his children in word and deed. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 7. I love this. It's a summary. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. I think right here we have two things. We have formally, there's a formal thing in your house. There's a formal aspect. You're going to sit down with the word of God. You're going to pray together. Just begin by praying together. You're going to read scripture. You're going to memorize scripture with your children. You'd be amazed at what kids can remember. It's amazing what they can remember. Oh, they can never memorize that. You know what? Try it and see who memorizes it first. It'll be kids, not you. We've seen that in our family for all these years with all of our kids. They get it like this, and we're still over there. Okay, uh, forgot. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah. And, and then our kids are telling us. All right, it's amazing. Yeah. Another thing is we we put together a thing. It's kind of if you ever grew up in a, in a tradition that has a catechism. What a catechism is, you ask questions, and you have answers already prepared to teach them truths. We put together a thing called God's Truth for God's Team, and that's what it is. It's a catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. And we went down and had 54 questions. Our kids, to help them learn the truths about God. That was, that was for me. We sat them down. Also, guys, the standard is not here. The standard is just begin to sit down. And whenever we were little, my wife had to go, hey, sweetheart, we can't like, you know, teach them all of Romans in one setting. And I'm like, what's wrong with these kids? Can't you just sit down and listen to this? This is amazing stuff about God's redemption plan. Do you not understand what God? And she's like, all right, sweetheart, just back off, all right? Let's go about two minutes and let's build from there, all right? So man, men, sometimes we can feel beat up because we know we're supposed to do this, but we don't know what to do. Hey, just start by praying every day together. And maybe reading one verse. God will use it, and he'll multiply it, and he'll build on that, and you'll be surprised when your kid leaves the house how much they fall in love with Jesus because you've spent time formally investing God's word in them. The other thing is informally. Notice it says, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, just all the time, when you're driving along. My wife's great at this. We'll see, like, when we're down the, I mean, when I'm driving, it's like, zoom. I've got a destination. She sees everything. Like, well, there could be like a pileup of 18 cars in another lane and 14 ambulances, and I'm just rolling, you know. And she's like, hey, let's pray for the, the emergency workers. All of our kids now, well, I'll be driving with all our kids. Hey, Dad, there's, a, there's an ambulance. Let's pray for them. All the time, just, just talking with them about things. God's involved in all things. He's working out his plan. When you're walking around, when you're watching TV, evaluate t- God's t- the, 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 God's plan based on, not evaluate the TV based on God's plan. What do we see about God in there? What do we learn about people? What's the need in this TV or movie? Just talking about what, how God, in relationships, right? How about restaurants? Not just praying with each other, but asking the server how you can pray for them and showing your kids that you care about that person because you know that God wants that person to be part of their, his redemption plan. 
how can we pray for you? And man, we've had some amazing things happen. We've asked people, how can we pray for you today? Just simple things. If someone's doing this in their home, and they'll be, they'll be, they'll be very intentional to do this in God's household too. If they're doing their own household, that's, that's why this is here. And Jay covered this under elders already in de- more detail. I could tell you, it's not like, oh gosh, what's that, under, what's that mean? It's pretty easy. And th- that's, what, that's what it means. Just investing God's word, being a one-woman man, investing God's word into your children through your life and through your lips. So how does 1 Timothy 3, all right, specifically 3, verse 12, the one we're looking at right now, all right, how does it fit into God's redemption plan? Here, here's how. God uses families. God uses families to accomplish his eternal and gracious plan to redeem a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Isn't that good news? He's using all of us. He's using our families to care about his plan of redemption for the world. Well, how can we respond to God's word this morning? Lots of ways. Are we intentionally investing God's word into our families? Whatever that is. Formally and informally. Is God using our families to represent his plan, or present his plan of redemption, the gospel, to those around us? What an opportunity we have. We all have different spheres of influence, all different people that we, we interconnect with, don't we? You know some people I don't know. I'll never get the opportunity to share the gospel with them, but you will. And you know some people I don't know. And I know some people you don't know. And our family knows some people that you don't know. And vice versa, that we get a chance to share the gospel with God's eternal redemption plan. Well, here's my question for you this morning. Have you embraced God's plan of redemption for you? Man, he loves you so much. When sin entered the world, he knew all about you, and he knew you'd walk away from him too. But he loved you so much that he carried out his promise to send his son to die on the cross and rise again to pay your sin debt, the sin you deserve, to pay that for you and give you life, give you eternity, give you forgiveness, make you right with God. Have you accepted that gift that he's laid out there for you? Are you part of that plan? I encourage you to turn from trusting yourself. God's, God's standard is 100%. He doesn't grade on the curve either. You're either perfect or holy or you don't get in or you accept the perfect and holy one who died for you and you trust in him alone. My prayer is you do that this morning if you haven't done that already. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your plan. Thank you that you are a God more amazing than we can ever imagine to have been about your plan from eternity. We can't even imagine that. And Lord, you are working it out for our good and for your glory. So Lord, we pray that you would use us this week in our homes and in our community to take that news, that beautiful, gracious, eternal plan that you came to rescue people from sin out into our world around us. Help us be faithful to do that. Help us do it in our homes so we're prepared to do it in everybody we come in contact with. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we close? I'm gonna have another New Testament benediction for us, just a blessing from God uh, to say over us and, and ask him to do what he only can do. Taken from 1 Thessalonians 2, I mean 3, 12 through 13. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. And for all people, just as we also do for you, 
so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.